Good evening. Tonight we'll be focusing on a, a few related texts in 1 John. Uh, the subject of this message will be the test of salvation by obedience to God's word. We'll begin with 1 John chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2 of 1 John. Unless I say otherwise, I'll be reading from the NASB 1995. Uh, once again, 1 John 2, we'll be reading verses 3 through 11, which will be our primary text for the evening. In verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Before we start looking at the text of 1 John, let's examine some introductory ideas about the book. Traditionally, 1 John is considered to be written by the Apostle John, though the text doesn't confirm it outright. In both 2nd and 3rd John, the author identifies himself as the elder. He similarly chooses not to directly identify himself in the Gospel of John, choosing instead to self-identify as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which he does throughout the fourth Gospel. The book of Revelation does give us an authorship claim, though, directly in verse 5 of the first chapter, which is very much appreciated. But returning to 1 John, we don't get a clearly structured letter format either, like we do in some of the other epistles in the New Testament. 2nd and 3rd John follow a much clearer traditional letter structure, but 1 John chooses to be a bit atypical on this. Commentators seem to handle this in one of a few different ways. Some identify the text as sort of an early New Testament tract. Um, others identify it as a poetic written sermon that, that applies a rhetorical technique known as amplification. This amplification chooses significant themes and then uses a circular structure to sort of rotate through those themes with added emphasis on each theme as that theme reappears. Lastly, some commentators just presume this to be a letter that lacks a more traditional letter structure, which happens elsewhere in scripture as well. But while we're introducing the book, we should read some of the introduction in 1 John 1. So turn back just a page there. Uh, I'll have some of this up on the screen, but not all of it. So if you, if you care to uh, follow along there, let's see, it's not advancing. My apologies. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. This is reading in 1 John 1 and verse 1. 
What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In this first verse, John establishes that he has heard, he has seen, he has looked at and touched the word of life. This isn't working well. Is there? Oh, that'll help. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. There we go. All right. Sorry for the confusion there. Um, He intends to remind his readers that he was an eyewitness to the events portrayed in his previously written gospel. That gospel seems to be referenced even here in the first verse of 1 John. For comparison's sake, we have in the gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say the darkness did not overcome it, or possibly that the light could not be grasped by the darkness. I was much older in life than I care to admit when I first noticed the obvious parallels that exist between the first verses of John, the Gospel of John, and the first verses of the book of Genesis. Um, So I put them both up on the screen there. Both books use the through the beginning. John even copies the exact phrase used in the Septuagint Greek translation of Genesis. Um, That's weird. Uh, Why am I got all lights? Okay, anyway, sorry guys. Um, D.A. Carson points out that John may have read the Gospel of Mark and seen that Mark began his Gospel with as follows, verse 1 of Mark, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John then says, essentially, I can do you one better, John Mark, and that this word, this logos, this Jesus, was around at creation, and not only was he there, but he spoke the creation into being. Um, He was the divine word that spoke the universe into being, and not that only, but regarding his state of being, he was both with God and he was God. He, too, was transcendent. Let's return to our introduction of 1 John, reading in verse 2, where John continues speaking about the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John sort of gives a purpose statement here. That is, I'm writing to complete my joy. But he gives a clearer purpose statement near the end of 1 John when he says in chapter 5, verse 13, which is on the screen already, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. So then we have a stated purpose here, again to compare the Gospel of John with 1 John. The stated purpose of the Gospel of John we see in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 of the Gospel of John. Therefore, this is in reading in verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Notice there, we even get reference to his name in both of those passages. These details help to connect, uh, connect the authorship questions that might exist in these books, but they're certainly not the only connection points. There they are. The stated purpose of the Gospel of John, then, is that you will believe in the good news and find eternal life in Christ. Whereas, in, the first, in 1 John, the purpose of this message is that you can know that you have eternal life. Essentially, to know that you believe. We can presume from this that there was likely a problem related to eternal security in some way in this church. We know that John speaks of a group that had left the church. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. We can presume then that the group that remained in the church was no doubt troubled by that other group's departure. People that had sat behind, beside them and worshipped with them in their homes had for some reason departed. And the question asked inevitably is, can this happen to us, right? Can, can we as well, uh, can we too be caught up with some false doctrine or no doctrine at all and just simply walk away from the faith? John's answer then, in short, is that they were never really regenerated, that they were never made new. And then in the rest of this short book, he expounds on how his readers can really know that they too aren't going to get caught up and one day walk out of here and someday, and because they were never really saved to begin with. So John then devises several tests to help believers know if they are really believers. And we have been tasked tonight with looking at the test of whether a person has salvation based on their obedience to God's word. Usually in John, in 1 John, the word that is used is commandments. That is, if you know God, you will keep his commandments. So if I could sum up this teaching tonight in the style of a uh, Pastor Michael big idea, I would frame it like this, and there's your big idea. For the believer, the knowledge, of God's the knowledge of God's commands compels the response of loyal obedience. Again, for the believer, the knowledge of God's commands compels the response of loyal obedience. Now that we've gotten our introduction out of the way, let's return to our primary passage in 1 John chapter 2 and look a little closer at our text. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11. Again in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Of course, we are aware that a mere knowledge of Christ does not mean that we're making him our Lord or our, our master. We're reminded, this, reminded of this quite well in the book of James. James is making the case that faith without works is a dead faith and reminds his readers that even the demons have knowledge of God. But 
but a knowledge of God is not one that necessarily leads to lordship. In James 2.19, we read, and I have it as well. All right, there you go. Um, in 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demon-possessed man in the book of Mark recognizes Jesus as the son, of, the son of the Most High God and then begs Christ to leave him alone. Clearly, mere knowledge of God doesn't always translate to worshiping him. In Hosea chapter 4, we have another reference to the knowledge of God that seems, I think, helpful to our study. So if we, let's go ahead and turn there, if you, if you will. I'll give you a moment because Hosea is probably a little bit more difficult to find. But Hosea chapter 4, we're going to be reading in verses 1 through 3 and also verse 6. So Hosea 4, verse 1. I hear pages, so I'll give you another moment. Hosea 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Let's skip down to verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children." Verse 1 and 2 tells us that the lacking of faithfulness, kindness, or knowledge of God in the land leads to all manner of sinful responses, culminating in bloodshed that follows bloodshed. Verse 6's mention of rejected knowledge offers an understanding that is not a mere ignorance about God that has led to this violent reaction, but rather they are actively refusing to acknowledge God's rightful standing as Lord. With that in mind, the Net Bible translation, which I love very much, uh, of verse 1 gives us a nuanced interpretation when it says in the middle of verse 1, I'll put it up on the screen, for there is, neither not, there is neither faithfulness nor loyalty in the land, nor do they acknowledge God. Jumping down to verse 6, then we see an, a similar interpretation. You have destroyed my people by failing to acknowledge me. Because you refuse to acknowledge me, I will reject you as my priest. Because you reject the law of your God, I will reject your descendants. In the translation note listed in the Net Bible, it reads as follows. Knowledge of God refers to recognition of his authority and obedience to his will. End quote. These translators tie real knowledge of God to, to obedience to his will. Because really knowing God demands a response. That response is loyalty and obedience to his commands, which is another way of stating the purpose of what we're looking at here this evening. If we truly follow Christ, we will be obedient to his word. Again, the goal of the message is to look at John's test of whether a person has salvation, which, is, which he bases on their obedience to God's word. The first phrase that John had mentioned is what we are looking at. This phrase, we have come to know him, which he called the knowledge of God. This reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah speaking of a time future to him, 
uh, in which knowledge of God won't be something that people can just shrug off as if they were ignorant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 34, we read, I'll put it up as well. Um, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So again, to summarize the point we're trying to get at here is that knowledge of God compels a moral response by the listener. Let's reread our primary text in 1 John again. We get a little bit of a running start as we move into the rest of the section, picking up in verse 3 of 1 John 2. And I'll put some of it on the screen there. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Breaking in here quickly again, this shouldn't be taken to mean that a Christian will never sin again. John had said pretty clearly earlier on in chapter 1 verse 8, which I think Andy read this morning, if we say that we have no sin and we are deceiving our if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let's return, though, to 1 John, uh, 1 John 2 and verse 5. All right. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Some of the ideas mentioned in these verses are going to likely be expounded on by some of the other men participating in this winter uh, conference series, but I'll tread carefully on their topics tonight. My topic has the luxury of encompassing all of Scripture, so it's kind of justifiable. We see in verses 5 and 6 uh, that whoever keeps his word, likely meaning the God the Father's word, the love of God will be perfected in him. We also have this abiding language that appears throughout the first and second letters of John. Various translations approach the words slightly different for various reasons. We see the words translated as abides, resides, lives, dwells, remains, and stays. My preference leads into residing, and part of the reason is because abiding has wrongfully taken on a, separate, a meaning separate from simply placing one's believing loyalty in Christ alone for one's salvation. Abiding isn't Christianity leveled up or taken to the next level or its final form. We see this spelled out fairly clearly for us in 2 John 9 when, it's, when it reads, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Again, looking at the translation note in the Net Bible, we get an understanding of the Greek word used here in 1 John some 10 times. I'm going to paraphrase their note for you here. In John's usage, this word meant closeness with God. It meant intimacy. It meant permanence. Like, like being yoked to him. I think Andy mentioned that this morning as well. The same word also gets mentioned throughout the Gospel of John in chapter 15, the vine and branches passage. John probably has those that left the church in his mind when he says, as they no longer abide under his or the apostles' teaching, they did not stay. That, that is, they did not abide. 
We can make some inferences about this group that had departed as well from the text of 1 John. Uh, although it's a, li a little bit speculative, I want to say that to you up front. This list of characteristics comes from Colin Cruz's commentary on the letters of 1 John, which I, I find very interesting. So I'm going to read them to you. Don't take this, like I said, as gospel, though. This is a little bit speculative. Firstly, this group claimed to know God, but their actions and behaviors didn't show it. Secondly, they may have claimed to be sinless, at least at that point in their Christian walk moving forward. Thirdly, they were in error when it came to the personhood of Christ, probably related to his humanity. John seems to call them out as antichrists in response to this. And fourthly, when John mentions in chapter 5 that Jesus came both by water and the blood, we can infer that those that left the church were focused only on the baptism of Jesus and not, um, and not at all on the salvation brought through his death and resurrection on the cross, that being the blood part of the above statement. It, it seems to imply as well that they may have been overly focusing on the receiving of the Spirit. If they're focused on the baptism of Christ in particular, the receiving of the Spirit may have been something that they were, instead of well, applying too much focus to. And lastly, according to Cruz, their relationship with believers was not a relationship that was marked with love. Let's return to verse 7, though, of our primary text in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. First off, in verse 7, we have John calling his recipients, the recipients of this letter, beloved. He had previously referred to them as children, not in a way that seems like he's talking down to them, though. After all, he calls himself the elder in 2nd and 3rd John. He also refers to them throughout the letter as brothers, as young men, and as fathers. Um, but I'd like to focus a little bit more on that, that word that he uses, beloved. Some translations choose a phrase like dear friends as a replacement. But there might be an idea floating around in John's head when he wrote this. Again, a little bit of speculation. This one will take us back to the Old Testament again, particularly to the events immediately following the death of David and Bathsheba's child. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll give you a second. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 25. We're going to read a couple of verses from there. Once again, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 25. reading in uh, verse 24, rather, excuse me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into, went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Your Bible might contain a small textual note that points out that the name Jedidiah means beloved, of the Lord. The Hebrew name David means simply beloved. Jedidiah essentially contains the root of the name David and adds the phrase of the Lord. In the case of Solomon, it's like the Lord is saying through the prophet that the Lord is choosing Solomon as the royal inheritor of the Davidic line by naming him Jedidiah or beloved of the Lord. Now then, let's fast forward about a thousand years to the book of Mark and pick up the story of the baptism of Jesus, reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 9. You can follow me there if you want, or I can just listen. This is once again Mark 1, verse 9 through 11. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. The phrase beloved in this context shows again that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, and it declares God the Father's approval of his son. Later then, when John uses the word beloved in First and Second John, it has a great deal of meaning to those that may have recognized its previous usage in other places in Scripture. This adds meaning as well to the inheritance language John records in his gospel in chapter 17, verse 22, when we hear Jesus speaking in verse 22, the glory which you, that is God the Father, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Well, let's return to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, but which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And here's verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is an intriguing section because of John's apparent contradiction. Uh, he starts out by saying that this isn't really something new, this commandment, but I suppose it's kind of a new commandment. Uh, commentators explain this in, uh, in various ways, but the best explanation that I've heard involves John not saying anything he hasn't said before, but instead John repeats what Jesus had once called a quote-unquote new commandment. To John and his readers, it is old. That is an, it is an old commandment, much like it is for us today. It's old. It happened a long time ago. Um, remember, though, John had seen the word of life. He had heard him and touched him. He had been an eyewitness to these, the, these things years ago. And since it took place a long while ago, it's old, right? But Christ called it new. So we continue to refer to it as the quote-unquote new commandment. There are other explanations for this apparent contradiction, but I thought that one was probably the most interesting. But as a reminder of, both, of this both old and new commandment, let's turn over to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John, where we'll be reading in verse 33, uh, 33 through 35. Once again, John 13, verses 33 through 35. If you want to keep a finger in 1 John, we'll be back there momentarily. Sorry for all the jumping around. So we'll be reading in uh, John 13, verse 33. Little children, the same, same uh, uh, address there as we saw in 1 John. I'm, I'm with you a little, long, a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This new commandment in John to love one another is about to be alluded to in the next couple of verses back in 1 John, albeit with a slightly different usage. So let's return then to 1 John and pick up our reading in verse 9. This is 1 John 2, verse 9. It is up on the screen. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, 
and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In verses 9 and beyond, we see John bring up some ideas we've seen earlier in this letter. Remember, we called this technique amplification. In chapter 1, verse 5, which is a verse we didn't read earlier, we stopped just short of it, he introduced this light and darkness metaphor. Uh, and we see it again here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This rhetorical technique uh, circles back to those previously introduced ideas with added emphasis in order to bring out a theme or an element that John wants to highlight. If um, John now is likely referring back to this group that had left the church as having fallen into darkness. Darkness doesn't seem to equate exactly to those that sin, though. Earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, John says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So that's not it. Darkness doesn't equal sin. I think that when John talks about the darkness, he's speaking of the condition in which you can't see what the problem is. You don't know or you don't care to know about your sin problem. You're metaphorically in the dark about it. To John, these people that have left the church, these secessionists, if you will, they don't love their brothers. In fact, they hate their brothers, and they don't recognize their sinful state. They're in the dark when it comes to their hatred of their brothers. This also provides a functional callback to the new commandment that John alludes to, that is the commandment in which Christ calls us to love our neighbors. To drive home the point, though, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13 of 1 John, John invokes Cain as an example of what happens when one falls into darkness and chooses to live there. They hate their brother, literally. Uh, reading in verse 11 of chapter 3, um, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, verse 12, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. That word slew is often reserved for the slaughter of animals, so some translations add an element of brutality to the meaning. Picking up again in verse 12. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. The implication here is that living in darkness leads to unrecognized sin. In this case, hate or jealousy. And fostering hate leads to the desire to murder. Cain illustrates this perfectly. So perfectly, in fact, that just a couple pages to the right, Jude uses Cain as an example of similar sinful false teachers that, it, that at least at that point in time appear to still be in the church at the time of the writing of the book of Jude. But they too probably ultimately left the church just like they did in 1 John. Jude says it this way, they follow the path of Cain. I'm going to read a portion of the event from Genesis 4. If you'd like to turn there with me, we re we'll return to 1 John in a bit, and we'll read in Genesis 4 uh, a few verses if you want to go there. I'll give you a moment to turn there and a moment for me to get a drink. So we'll pick up in Genesis 4, verse 3. Verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. 
Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. We're not told, let me break in for a moment, why Cain's offering wasn't satisfactory to the Lord. Commentators love to speculate on this sort of thing. Uh, no matter, though, the point isn't why. The point is how Cain responds. And what does he do? Well, let's return to the middle of verse 5. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If I could interrupt one more time. The Lord seems to give Cain a second chance to do well, uh, that is, to correct his actions and, and to turn, to change his demeanor. Another way of putting this is to say that Cain had a chance to recognize his sin as sin. To push John's light and darkness metaphor maybe further than John does, Cain had a chance to turn on the light and recognize his sin as sin or to rather simply continue in darkness. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19, we read the following. I am choosing to read this from the, the Net Bible for its translation clarity. And Christ is speaking here, by the way. This is John, chapter 3, verse 19. Now, this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world and the, and the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Just as a reminder, the, the words of Jesus are in, are in color. They're, they're in the color red in your Bible, but the words of the Holy Spirit are in black. I guess what I'm saying is this obedience we're speaking of doesn't just concern the literal words of Christ. We have a cultural tendency to promote acceptance and tolerance of very unbiblical ideas in a way, turning God is love, that message, into a very false love is a God of our world's own making. The false God of love is love becomes an object of worship for those who don't acknowledge the most high God of scripture or his commands. Let's return to verse 20. This is in, uh, in Genesis. For everyone who does evil, evil deeds, hates the... No, it's not. That's not in Genesis, is it? Either way. Verse 20. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. Light has a way of exposing sin, and darkness has a way of hiding that same sin's existence. Let's return, though, to Genesis and Cain for a moment. In the next part of verse, five, verse 7, we get a beautiful and a terrifying picture of what sin wants from us. This is in verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, and you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. In short, Cain was exiled. He was sent out, not unlike those that went out from us in 1 John. 
Again, a reminder that the letter of 1 John is written to help with assurance and that the way in which that assurance can be realized or known, as John would say, is through obedience to God's commandments. The relationship between these two, that is assurance and obedience, is really a linear relationship. Being more obedient likely causes increasing, increasing assurance, sure, but really it's when one's, one is lacking in obedience that the feeling of assurance is probably also most lacking. Like a symptom of an illness or an injury, it points clearly to something not being right about one's relationship with God. So back to 1 John and picking up in chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John has noticed a pattern. The presence of sin has led to death, and all of mankind are born as children of the darkness, of this world, of the devil. That is their default state. Their default state is represented quite well by Cain. He walks in darkness and sin wants him. When sin sees righteousness, it becomes furious with it because righteousness reminds sinners of their own condition. Confronted with his own sinfulness, Cain chooses to hate the, right, the righteousness of Abel and he desires to wipe it out one way or another. The Apostle John sees this cycle in Cain. He may have seen it as well in those that had recently left the church and warns the church, living in darkness leads to jealousy. John, a chapter earlier, calls that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. This jealousy leads to hatred of your brothers, and when it has time to grow, this hatred leads to violence and to bloodshed. This is why John warns in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brethren if the world hates you. Those that try to live a life that reflects Christ and his righteousness will always be at odds with those that still live in darkness. They do not have fellowship. Elsewhere in scripture, we see admonitions against being unequally yoked with, with unbelievers, probably for similar reasons. In addition, the implications of verse 13 should warn the church against being accepted by the world. The inverse of verse 13 might read something like this. If the world loves and accepts the church or Christianity in general, you might want to reevaluate your church or your Christianity. John reminds his readers that loving your brother is the way to show the world that they don't have to continue walking in darkness like Cain did. They, too, can have the seed of God rather than the seed of the evil one. Earlier, I had mentioned that John uses a cycle of amplification with his primary points. Uh, and as a reminder, the theme of the book is that we have eternal security in this knowledge. Our position in Christ is secure when we see the desire to be obedient to God's word in our own lives. Sometimes, really most of the time, this will put us at odds with our culture and with society in general. 
those that call themselves Christians might find themselves walking back from hard positions uh, that scripture takes on controversial issues or asking questions not radically different than the serpent in the garden when they say something like this, did God really say that? Those that left this church in 1 John, those that went out from us because they were not of us, surely placed doubts in the heads of those that remained in the church. And with those ideas in our head, John comes back to these themes in two more places in 1 John. Still in chapter 3, we're in verses 21 through 24. I'll begin reading in verse 21 in just a moment. Verse 21 in John, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we had confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In verse 23. We again have a reminder of his commandments, the final part of this verse, believing in the name of the Son. This, once again, is the primary focus of the Gospel of John. This, the new commandment to love one another, we recall from earlier. In verse 24, John reintroduces the abiding, remaining, or residing language that we spoke of earlier. But as he amplifies it during this cycle, John adds in the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly. This is a first here in this cycle, and it works perfectly with the abiding message. If we follow his commands, we abide in him. And how do we know that he abides in us? Because we have been given his indwelling spirit. This mutual indwelling, John cycles back to in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit, given us his spirit, excuse me. But on the topic of the test of assurance by obedience, by the obedience to God's word, we have at least one last cycle to look at. That cycle is in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let's look there now. Once again, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when, he, when we love God and observe his commandments. Verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. As we conclude this evening, John throws in a little bit of an unexpected element here at the end. The idea of following these commands, these commands that show evidence of salvation, is not a difficult burden. Sometimes we might beg to differ with John, uh, but in realizing what John is saying here, I think we should turn to the Gospel of John and look at chapter 15. In John 15, beginning in verse 1, we read, you can turn there if you'd like, you don't have to. You might be familiar with the passage. It's uh, John 15 and verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, or the gardener. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Verse 4, 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The burden of following the commandments of our God is not heavy when he's the one who gives us life, when we are yoked to him. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But while we abide in him, he causes us to grow. He helps us to follow his commands. He makes loving God and loving others easier. He takes us out of the darkness and transfers us into his marvelous light. Our burdens are no longer heavy because he's the one who does the heavy lifting. Pastor Jim.